You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. How you doing, Revolution Church? I'll take it. So, you guys will see in the backs of your pews, there are new white Bibles. Our blue Bibles are gone. Uh, th- that translation in the, in, the back of your, uh, in the back of the pews, the ESV, the English Standard Version, also known as the Elect Standard Version. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, that translation will actually match what's on the screen now. So if you were using the Blue Bibles, you were probably confused. But you can take those home too. That's a gift to you. If you don't have an ESV, it's very good. We will buy more because I found them for $1.49 a piece online. Thank God for that. It was awesome. Uh, I also found 12,000 communion cups for about $140. So that was beautiful. It's going to take us years to get rid of all those. Anyway, um, unless God blesses us and we just explode into a megachurch. Um, either way, we're cool. Either way, God will do what he wants. He's sovereign. Um, but yeah, so if you're new here, uh, I don't know if I see, Yeah, I see a couple of new faces, I think. Uh, my name's Dave, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Rev, and what we're doing this evening is we are continuing our series called Bible Stories, Christ in the Old Testament. And what we're doing is we're seeing how the most famous Old Testament stories uh, point to and foreshadow Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that all scripture points to him, it's all about him, so we're just going through and seeing how that is true, how it all points to Jesus. Um, so for the last two weeks, we have been looking at the prophet Elijah. Um, you know, we look at the hymn, Calling Down Fire from Heaven to Consume a Sacrifice and Prove that the Prophets of Baal uh, were worshiping a false god and that Israel had indeed fallen into idolatry. And that was a miraculous thing, that he prayed and God restored rain after a three and a half year drought. And last week we saw uh, God speaking to uh, Elijah in a still, small voice, right, proving that God is there even whenever he seems like he's not. Um, but last week we, uh, we read that God told Elijah, it was at the very end, we didn't talk about it, we read that God told Elijah to anoint a man named Elisha as a prophet, which to me is proof that God is hilarious that he would put two stories right back to back, Elijah and Elisha, and it's the bane of my existence. Forgive me if I confuse the two names because it happens a lot. Um, yeah, I, always th- I think God is funny. I was considering that because I kept calling him Elijah and writing Elijah in my notes when I was studying this past week. Um, but I thought this was interesting, just a little fun fact for you, where Elijah meant my God is Yahweh. Elisha means God is salvation. Right? So I thought that was pretty cool. That's what that means in Hebrew. Uh, but at this point, uh, in the text that we're reading in this evening, um, Elijah, Elijah, see I'm doing it already, <laughs> Elijah uh, has been taken up to heaven right, in a chariot of fire. You know, Not the song, but you remember the part in the Bible? Uh, so Elijah doesn't die, uh, and, he, and he's taken up to heaven, and that's pretty cool stuff. We skipped over that. Uh, but now Elisha has taken Elijah's place as... Uh, the main prophet in Israel. And his ministry is full of miracles, just like Elijah's was. Uh, But tonight, our text is going to focus on one miracle specifically that God did through Elisha, and that's healing a man of leprosy. Um, So the account that we're in this evening, just to give you just a a kind of a a short view of what I'm hoping that we'll all take away from this. Uh, The account that we're in this evening is one that teaches us about the nature of God's grace. The nature of God's grace to his enemies. The nature of God's grace to sinners. Um, you know, the healing of, of a leper, like the physical healing of this man Naaman that we're going to check out, um, is really a secondary thing. It's an instrument used to show us the bigger picture. We'll see in, in the Bible all the time, uh, physical realities point to spiritual truths. 
Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, Elisha, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And Naaman urged him to take it, but he refused. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, use me as an instrument for truth this evening. Speak through the preaching of your word. Give us soft hearts and fresh eyes to see the grace of God extended toward us. God, let this not be just another thing for us to check off. Yes, we know God is gracious, but let this be a truth that penetrates us and absolutely transforms us and hits us in a way that we've never had before. Father, thank you for your grace given to us in Christ. Please draw an unbeliever to you and remind the people who already belong to you that you are a God of grace. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Naaman. right? Naaman, the text tells us, was a powerful man. Right? He, he's rich. right? If you can get together 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold, you're loaded. Right? So he's a powerful man. He's rich. He's great in his country. He's high in his king's eyes. Right? He's commander of the army. He had everything that you could possibly want in the world. Right? A man of uh, a great station in life. Right? A man that we would probably generally be envious of. But the text tells us he was a leper, right? And just so you know, uh, whenever the text tells us that he had leprosy, it's not necessarily like leprosy that, that we tend to think of right off the bat, where like your like hands fall off and, and that kind of stuff. Um, this could be various skin diseases. Like I was reading one commentary, it said it could be stuff like eczema, um, you know, psoriasis, things like that. Uh, but regardless, here's what's important about that. Regardless, people of that time viewed skin diseases in general. They, they could lump them all into the category leprosy. Uh, they, they generally viewed skin diseases as a symbol of death or divine punishment. Right? So regardless like of whether what kind of leprosy that you had, they didn't want to associate with you too much. Um, Naaman maybe contracted this leprosy later in life after he had attained this station that he is in as, as the commander of the army. Um, but again, people think that this is a symbol of death or divine punishment. It's a horrible thing to be a leper. Um, Matthew Henry, uh, a, gr- a great commentator from the 1700s, he said, uh, paraphrasing him, he said, He was as great a man as the world could make him, but not even a slave would change skins with him. Right? So this man's great in station, high in life, but he is a leper. Now, I'm going to spiritualize that. The, the leprosy, again, physical truths point to a spiritual reality here. So I think Naaman's physical leprosy reveals the truth to us that he is unclean before God. Not only according to the, to the purity uh, ceremonial law of Israel, but in, in reality, he is unclean before God. He is a sinner. He is a pagan. He does not know Yahweh, the living God. He does not know the God of Israel. And the fact that Naaman was so powerful and at such a high station in life, I think reminds us that all of humanity... Right? Regardless of the station that we're in, regardless of how much money we have or whatever it is, that we all have this problem of being spiritually unclean before God. And I know what you're thinking. We're about to do the checklist stuff where you guys already know this stuff. But please, like, let this sink into you. Like, we, like the men's group, we were just talking about uh, total depravity and man's inability to do anything good. And, and it hit me in a new way. And I, I, want it, I want you guys to let this sink in. We are born morally incapable of doing any good before God. 
We are born completely depraved. We are depraved to the core. We are sinners. We are hostile to God. We don't love Him. We are by nature children of His wrath. And it's not that we're like this sad, um, I want to do good, but I just can't. That's not the picture the Bible gives us. We love our sin. We are spiritually unclean. We love to sin. We love to transgress the law of God. And all of us, by nature of birth, because of the the sin of Adam, um, not only that, right? Not only are are we born unclean and impure because of the sin imputed to us by God from what Adam has done, that we sinned in Adam as well, but we have all offended a holy, pure, innocent, good, perfect creator God in our own actions, in thought, word, and deed. We are completely, absolutely unclean on our own. And again, you guys know this too, but a holy, just God will not permit the unclean in His presence. That's why there is hell. He will cast the sinner into hell. He will not have the unclean thing near Him. So it doesn't matter how moral or how nice or how wealthy or religious or whatever we are, how often we read our Bible, how often we come to church, we need cleansed. And we need reminded of this. Because I'm truly convinced that we often forget what we really are. Especially if we've been Christians for a while. It's really easy for us to gloss over those truths and say, yeah, I was born a sinner, but I'm a saint now. No, like we really need to like have us, this hit us in a new way on a regular basis. We are unclean. Completely helpless. And in the hands, in the words of Jonathan Edwards, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God apart from Christ. Completely deserving of His wrath. But the two most beautiful words in the Bible are, but God. Right? But God, in His grace has provided the remedy for our uncleanliness. And He's provided it for us in Christ, where Christ lived a sinless life in our place and took our sin on Himself and went to the cross to reconcile us back to God. That we've been washed in the blood of Christ and made clean. We who were formerly unclean. God has made this available to all who will repent of their sins and turn to Christ. And all need Him because all are unclean, regardless of station. And I just wanted to hit that very fundamental gospel truth before we go any further. We are unclean, and Christ is our only hope for cleanliness. But by faith, the New Testament teaches us this, by faith, we are united with Christ. And this is a doctrine we don't tend to talk about. We like to talk about imputation, that my sin was imputed or put on Christ, and His righteousness was imputed or put on to me, uh, I believe Martin Luther worded it like this, like we are uh, manure covered in snow, <laughs> right? Which is a fairly accurate way to view imputation, like we are trash, but God covers us with, with cleanliness, right? That's good. But in doing that, I think sometimes uh, we neglect this good doctrine of union with Christ, right? That by faith we are united with Christ. Now think of it like a marriage, like an undivorceable marriage, um, that, that once we're united with him, we are his bride, he is our husband, he doesn't divorce us, and everything that he has is now given to us. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son because we are one with Christ. Right? So again, his righteousness is put onto us, and this is an undissolvable union because, thank God, Christ does not divorce his bride. No matter how often we may commit adultery against him, he is the faithful husband, like Hosea and Gomer in the Old Testament. So because of this union with Christ, 
Because whatever is said of the Son is also said of us. God counts us righteous because by faith we've been united with Christ. We are clean in God's sight. He reckons us righteous. He legally declares us righteous or justified in His sight. But we're still sinners. Right? So we are clean in God's sight, though we are still sinners in our own right. So we are both clean and unclean. Right? We are both simultaneously justified and sinners. We are both saint and sinner at the same time. Only by Christ, hear me on this, only by Christ are you clean. Right? You're either unclean or you're clean. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There's no third option. You're either clean by Christ or you're unclean by your own works and your own nature that you're born into. I really wanted to highlight this before we go any further. This is... Um, Maybe not so much to do with the text, but I, w- I wanted to hit union with Christ and, and our need for cleanliness, and that our cleanliness only comes from Christ. Because I've been—I I preached a really hard sermon a couple weeks ago about holiness, right? And that we ought to strive for moral purity and purity in speech and purity in thought and purity in deed and in the things that we entertain ourselves with. Um, and that's good. That's good. It's biblical. The writer of Hebrews says, "Strive for the holiness without which no one will see God." Right? That's great. But I wanted to hit this, that we are only clean by Christ because sometimes as we strive for holiness, we can become self-righteous. And I've not seen that rear its head too much um, since I've preached that sermon. But I want to address this. And what I mean by self-righteous is that we, uh, as we grow in holiness and as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, um, as, as we read the scripture and as he convicts us of sin and it shows us what's righteous, that we can look around us at the unbelieving world and, and, and rightly see and rightly declare that others are unclean and that they need Christ. But in doing so, because we are being sanctified, we can sometimes begin to feel superior to them and look down on them because of their uncleanliness. I'm not the only one that does this sometimes. I know that. But know this. right? This is the point that I wanted to hit really hard before we go any further. If our union with Christ... This is totally hypothetical. It's actually not possible. But if our union with Christ were to be taken away for one moment, we would be the same as Naaman. Right? We would be unclean. Regardless of how how much our morality has progressed, no no matter how how much good speech that we might have now, uh, no matter how good that we have become over the years, if our union with Christ were to be dissolved somehow, we would be just as unclean as Naaman, no matter how moral we may or may not have become. So I want us to all to be able to say that apart from Christ, and really mean this, apart from Christ, I am Naaman. Apart from Christ, I am spiritually unclean. Because we have to remember that we daily need Christ to make us clean. There's never one instance that we don't need our union with Christ. There's never one instance that our morality has officially negated the work of Christ for us. We need Him all the time. We are no better than the unclean people around us. We've just merely been washed in the blood of Christ. Right? We are washed sinners pointing other sinners to the one who made us clean, and that's it. Right? So if there's any kind of spirit of self-righteousness that might rear its head, as I hope you all are striving for moral integrity and to put to death sin in your life, I just wanted to remind us of that. We are Naaman. All of us individually can say, I am Naaman apart from Christ. I am unclean. But anyway, let's kick it back to Naaman. I wanted to make that point, right? Not only do I preach the text, but I have to to preach to the church as I see needs coming around. I just wanted to hit that. Um, 
Well, let's kick it back to Naaman, right? Who is Naaman? Right? Naaman is a Syrian, not a Syrian. That's another country. He is a Syrian, sorry. No, nothing? Anyway. Um, right, so he is a Syrian. He is, so because of that, he's a, he's a Gentile, right? He's not a Jew. He's a pagan, right? He worships false gods. Uh, and he's the commander of the army of Syria. And Syria and Israel would fight sometimes. So this means that he is commander of the army that attacks God's nation at the time. So he is an enemy of Israel, which means he's an enemy of God, right? That's how closely God identifies with his people. That if someone's an enemy of his people, they are now an enemy of God. That's why Jesus, whenever he goes to Saul, who became Paul, says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Whenever Saul is persecuting the church, right? So to be an enemy of Israel at this time is to be an enemy of God. I say that because I just want to highlight, Naaman is a bad guy. Naaman is trash. Naaman not only is unclean spiritually and unclean physically as a leper, Naaman is just a bad person. He's a pagan enemy of God. There we go. In verse 2 that we read, tells us that Naaman is the commander of an army that raided a village in Israel and took a little girl captive. Took a little girl captive, or young woman, depending on how your translation reads. But, it, but that army raided a village and took a little girl captive. Made her a slave. Made one of God's people a slave. I just really want us to see that Naaman is an enemy of the, the living God. Period. He enslaves the people of God. He's essentially like Pharaoh. Think about him that way. He's enslaving one of the people of God. Bad guy. But this slave girl does something astounding. I could preach a whole sermon on the slave girl, right? In verse 3, she tells Naaman, I wit, or tells Naaman's mistress, which I wonder what that means. Might be his wife, I don't know, anyway. Um, No, no one thought that was funny, anyway. Uh, So she tells Naaman, or his mistress, I wish that Naaman would go see the prophet in Israel. Because the prophet in Israel would heal you. Think about, like, that is astounding. That her, a slave... Right? That's, that's, that's amazing that she would say, if you go see the prophet, I believe that the prophet will heal you. Right? Now, I don't want to uh, undercut this girl because that's not a completely accurate statement that the prophet would heal her. She's an Israelite, right? She knows Yahweh. She knows the God of Israel. And she knows that it's not Elisha himself. It's not the prophet himself doing miracles. She knows that it's God doing the miracles through Elisha. Right? So I think the, the idea behind her sentence that we can see is she looks at this man who is a bad guy, who is her master, she is his slave, and says, my God would heal you if you would seek mercy from him. If you would go to Elisha, my God would heal you. So again, don't miss this. This is a girl who is a slave to Naaman. Naaman is an enemy of Israel. He's God's enemy. And yet, this girl fully believes that God will heal Naaman if Naaman will go to God and plead for mercy. This slave girl understands grace. This slave girl understands the nature of grace. You are an enemy of my God. My God will heal you if you go to him for mercy. That's scandalous, right? That's because grace itself is outrageous and scandalous to us. So if we're going to define grace, I believe the Bible would define grace in this way. It is unmerited favor from God. Grace is a free gift from God given to the undeserving, right? Which is all of us. All of us are sinners. All of us have offended, in the words of R.C. Sproul, a thrice holy God, 
right? We have all offended God. We are all sinners. All of us are undeserving of any good that he might do to us, whether physical or spiritual. And she believes that God will give grace to even his enemy, which again is all of us. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It will not please him. Indeed, it cannot. We're all God's enemy by nature. And she believes that God will give grace to an enemy. That is outrageous to humanity. Like really, like I know like a lot of us are maybe desensitized to the message of grace. Like this is truly outrageous to us though. If we really, like if we were to see this play out in our lives. Like someone murders my child and then I invite that man over for dinner. Right? Like that would be scandalous. That would be outrageous grace. I think sometimes like because we read about grace so much in the Bible and hear it so much preached that we just kind of glaze over just how amazing that it is. Right? But most people, even in the church, but most people don't, don't really have a place for grace in their thinking. Right? We have this mentality that says, you get what you deserve. Right? That if you want it, work for it. Which is true in secular matters. I'm not telling you not to go to work your job and get your money. Right? But we have this mentality that says, you get what you deserve always. Everyone always gets what they deserve. And that kind of thinking, I am convinced that that kind of thinking bleeds into our theology. Right? It bleeds into how we think about God and turns into this. Tell me if you've ever heard this preached even. God helps those who? Trash. Right? Like just garbage. Right? That is anti-Christ. God helps those who help themselves is anti-gospel. And yet that kind of thinking has bled into us a lot. That way of thinking is the antithesis of grace. God helps those who help themselves. Grace says God gives unmerited favor to undeserving sinners who were not helping themselves. Not one person asked for God to send Christ to earth to die as a substitute for sinners. Not one person asked for that. But God gave the promise of Christ in Genesis 3 after the fall. Adam and Eve had not asked. God gives it to the undeserving. The idea that God helps those who help themselves is justice. That's not grace, that's justice. And if Naaman were to receive justice from God, what would he get? He'd get leprosy for life. He himself would be sold into slavery. He would get death. And he would get God's eternal scorn in hell. Which is what we would all get if God were to give us justice. We don't want justice from God. We want mercy. We want grace from God. And this girl, this slave girl, believes in a God of grace. She believes in a God of mercy. Which, by the way, mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Right? Two sides of the same coin. And she believes in a God of mercy and grace. Psalm 145, verse 8 we're going to read a good portion of that later. It says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is one of the most repeated phrases in the entire Bible. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's her God. That's the God she believes in. She believes in a God, to quote the Apostle Paul, who justifies the ungodly, who gives grace to sinners, who gives grace to all who seek Him. Even a man like Naaman, who's an avowed enemy of God, this is the living God. God who gives unmerited favor to those who don't deserve it at all. A God who gives grace 
to sinners. This is scandalous. And she understands the nature of grace. Naaman, on the other hand, right, Naaman has no understanding of God's grace. Right? And I would argue that's because he's used to pagan gods. Right? That's what he's grown accustomed to. He's accustomed to pagan gods who demand people to appease them and to work for their blessing, to work for their favor. Right? That's like the system that you see in pagan cultures. Right? You offer this to a god. You do this act or service for a god. This is actually what you see in every religion but Christianity. Um, you do this for a god, and the god will give you something back. You be good enough, he'll save you. You do this, he'll bless you. All right? That's the kind of god system that Naaman is used to working with. But we can see that Naaman has no concept that God would freely give blessing to somebody because he prepares to meet Elisha by bringing 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothes, and a king's letter and an entourage with him. Right? He's like Birdman going shopping at the mall. Right? <laughs> like, I, I, I was reading a commentary. This was madness. Today's equivalent of all that he had back then was about three-quarters of a billion dollars. Homeboy brought $750 million worth of stuff with him to see Elisha. This cat has no idea what grace is. He expects to buy his healing from God. He expects to pay Elisha off. Right? But then we see something else that, that shows us that Naaman doesn't understand the nature of grace. Elisha sends a messenger to him and says, hey, go dip yourself in the, Jordan, in the river Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. Naaman gets angry over a simple command to go wash in the Jordan. He gets angry about it. He, 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 he thinks it's too simple. He expected that if it wasn't to be bought, if the grace of God was not to be bought, that God's grace was to be earned through some kind of ceremony or hard task that he had to complete. Naaman expected to pay or work for the grace of God. And God will have none of that. Right, this actually reminds me of a, a story. Um, I was on campus one time, and um, I was doing, I, I call it cold call evangelism, right? I'm just kind of like street evangelizing people that I don't know. And I ran up on this uh, Muslim girl. Uh, I didn't run up on her. She actually walked past me. I'm not like chasing people down on campus. Um, <laughs> But I, 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 this Muslim girl walks up to me, um, and I start talking to her, and I'm trying to talk to her about the gospel, and I'm talking to her about Jesus. And she tells me that she was uh, raised Christian and became a Muslim uh, later in life. Whenever she was uh, like eight, 17 or 18, she became a Muslim. And, uh, and as we're talking about Jesus, and I'm trying to get the conversation towards the gospel, she goes, do you know why I reject Christianity? And I was like, I would love to know why. Yeah, I mean, please, enlighten me. Why do you reject Christianity? She said, because you guys believe that you are saved because of what someone else did. And that means that your actions don't matter. Because God's going to save you because of what Jesus did. And I want my actions to matter. You see, in Islam, if I'm good enough, if I obey Allah enough, He will save me. And if I'm bad, if I don't do enough good deeds, if I don't love Him enough, He'll send me to hell. What I do matters. And I don't want to be saved by someone else. What a miserable life. How would you ever know that you had done enough? How would you ever know that you were good enough? How would you ever know that you have loved that God enough? What a miserable existence to have to think that you must earn favor from God whenever you yourself are a sinner. 
But it's not just in false religions like Islam. We Christians can fall into that kind of mindset too, can we not? I've lived there before. Right? But sometimes I think in, in, in a, uh, maybe a little bit of a lesser way, um, hear me on this. I think we can fall into this kind of mindset. And, and I'll give you an example. You sin in a, just a big way. Like you, you really screw it up, right? Like you, it's just all out rebellion against God. You knew you shouldn't have done it. You're going to do it anyway. And then you do it. And conviction comes because the Holy Spirit's good for that every time. And you get this thought, how can I get rid of this guilt and this conviction? How can I be reconciled back to God? How can I have a right relationship with Him restored? I'm filthy. I know what kind of dirt that I am. And we look to the Bible. What does the Bible tell us to do? Repent and believe the gospel. It just means turn from your sin and turn towards Christ and believe that Christ has reconciled you to God with His perfect life and atoning death and resurrection. And then we do that. We do that. Genuinely repent and believe the gospel. But then we continue to walk around feeling guilt and shame like we can't approach God because we feel like we are still unclean. And I think we begin to think to ourselves, or at least I have thought, uh, if I'm going to be honest, there must be some kind of act of, of penance or some kind of act of contrition, right? Something more for me to do to take this feeling of guilt away. There's got to be something else aside from repenting and believing. It's just not tangible. There must be something that I do to be reconciled. And in that moment, God stares us straight in the eye and says, what more can you pay me than my son has paid for you? Or what more can you do than my son has done in your place? Nothing. There's nothing more to be paid. There's nothing more for us to do. Repent and believe on Christ. He is sufficient. God saves us by the work of another, not our own. He saves us by grace, not by works. So I can say this to you confidently and memorize this. You are no more accepted by God the moment after you sin than the moment you first repented and believed. No more and no less. Because you have been united with Christ. Whatever He says of the Son, He says of you. There's nothing more for you to do than to trust what Christ has done. There was a Puritan named Samuel Bolton, who in my mind I like to imagine is the great-grandfather of Michael Bolton. Um, right? But there's this Puritan, Samuel Bolton, who wrote a book called The True Bounds of Christian Freedom, I believe is what it's called. It's a good book. It's really good it's really old, but it's, it's fantastic. And in it, he gives this analogy of a kingdom, right? And I want, I want to use this analogy to kind of emphasize grace for you guys. He says, if a king says, I will give you a kingdom for nothing, and then gives you the kingdom, just signs the whole thing over to you, then you have received that kingdom by grace. He gave it to you freely, and you did nothing, just because he wanted to give it to you. But, if that same king with the same kingdom says, I will give you my entire kingdom with all of its money, all of its subjects, all of its land, I will sign the whole kingdom over to you for a penny. And you agree. And you pay him the penny and you receive the kingdom. Though what you paid was significantly less than what the kingdom is worth, you still did not receive it by grace. You bought it. It was a transaction. You did something to get it. I say that to emphasize this point. 
our right standing with God is either all of grace or none of grace. Period. Even the smallest act, whether it be baptism, if God said you must believe in Christ and then be baptized in order to be saved, that's a work. It's no more of grace. If it's repent on Christ and then be a really good person and make sure you don't screw up too much before you die or lose your salvation, that's works. That's no longer of grace. If it's believe and, and, and take communion and then you'll be saved, it's no longer of grace. No matter how small the work may be or how small the payment may be, if we must do a single thing to add to the work of Christ, it is no longer of grace, but it's of works. No matter how small or how few the works may be. But to paraphrase the Apostle Paul, he says, but we believe man is justified apart from works of the law. Who's the we? The apostles. And we, the church, have been built on the foundation laid by the apostles. So we can confidently say, opposing works righteousness, opposing trying to pay God, but we believe as the church that man is justified apart from works of the law. Because we are the church that was built upon the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. We believe. We reject a works-based righteousness. All is of grace or none is of grace. But Naaman, now getting back to the story, Naaman is initially offended by grace. Right? Like we talked about, he, he thought it was too simple a thing. But by God's grace, his servants talk some sense into him in verse 13, right? Naaman expected to have to do some great work. Where Again, he rejects this simple command. And his servants essentially look him in the face and say, Naaman, do you want to be clean? If you, actually, they, they literally say, will you not do it? If it's such a simple command to go wash in the river, don't you want to be clean? Won't you do the simple thing and be clean? When I was reading this, I couldn't, I couldn't help. It kept reminding me of a hymn I used to sing all the time when I was little called Power in the Blood. And it says, would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood saying, go and be washed in the blood of Christ. Would you be free? Do you desire freedom from your sin? Then go be washed in the blood of Christ. Would you be free? Would you be reconciled to God? Then repent and believe the gospel. It's simple. That's God's only decree to us to be reconciled to Him. Repent and trust what Christ has done. And Naaman, desiring above all to be clean, he goes to the river and washes And to paraphrase Matthew Henry again, it made me chuckle a little bit. He said, when sinners become willing to do anything to be clean, then they begin to have hope. And not a moment before. Because then the sinner will begin to take Christ on his own terms. (laughs) When we won't reconcile with God, we will do the simplest command. We'll do whatever he says. To be made clean and brought from our sinful state into a state of grace. We will repent and believe the gospel. But Naaman washes. And I don't want you guys to miss the point, because I'm I'm sure someone somewhere is jacked with what this means. (laughs) It wasn't the water that cleansed Naaman. Like, I've seen pictures of the Jordan, and I've talked to people who have been there, that thing is dirty. Right? It wasn't the water. It wasn't the act of Naaman dipping himself in the water seven times. Neither of those things cleansed Naaman. It was God's grace freely given to Naaman as Naaman laid down his pride and humbled himself to the Word of God. The Word of God being, go wash yourself. 
He laid his pride aside saying, it's too simple, it's too easy, it won't work. And he washed, he humbled himself to God's word. The Bible says, on repeat, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the arrogant. He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Naaman laid his pride aside and washed himself by faith. Why else would he have done it? He washed himself by faith and he was made clean by God. The text says, and if you'll allow me this play on words, the text says that his skin was made like a child's skin. And Naaman had indeed become a child. He had become a a child of God. He had went from being a child of God's wrath to a child of God. And he did the same way, he became a child of God the same way that Christ tells us that we have to come to Him. He says we have to come to Him with faith like children, where we trust His Word, where we look to Him with complete and utter trust, saying, You are my righteousness. You are my reconciliation to God. You are my peace. You are my comfort. And nothing else, because this is what you've said that you are. He says we must come to Him with a childlike faith trusting His Word to us, that He will be everything that we need. That's what God asks us, that we would humble ourselves before the Word of the Gospel and be clean. That we would submit ourselves and repent and believe. But what was the outcome? At the very end, we see that Naaman was cleansed and converted. And he came back to Elisha. And he came back wanting to give money. He's like, dude, take, take whatever you want, man. Like, take, all, take three quarters of a billion dollars. Right? And Elisha wouldn't take it because he's a better person than I am. Um, <laughs> no, the, by the way, the point of Elisha not taking it was like, this was free and I didn't do it. It wasn't me. It was God. Right? And woe to pastors who are, we're going to quote pastors who do this stuff for money. Woe to any of us if we do anything in God's name for money. But anyway, he comes back to Elisha uh, wanting to give money. But what's interesting is the text tells us that it's not that he wanted to buy grace this time. Right? That wouldn't make any sense. Right? He has already received grace from God. He's already been converted. He's already been healed. But the text says that he comes back to give a present to Elisha. He comes back to give a gift of gratitude toward God. Right? You can't give God anything. I'm supposing he's thinking the second best thing is to give it to his prophet. He comes back wanting to give a gift of gratitude towards God. That is the outcome. That is the fruit of receiving divine grace. Naaman was converted and sought to give back to God from a heart of gratitude. Not in order to earn grace, but because he has already received it. And that is to be our heart. If we have been converted, if we have been brought from death to life by the work of the Holy Spirit, if we are regenerate people, if we are Christians, this is our heart. Because we have received the same grace, have we not? How could the outcome in our lives be any different than Naaman's? To want to give back to God out of gratitude. It's out of a changed heart. This is why, after conversion, we proceed to follow Christ and do the works that God would have us to do. This is why we obey. Hear me on this. This was such, and I need to hear this a lot. This, this truth set me free as a Christian. We obey God because we have already received grace from God. We don't obey God trying to get it. We have already received it. We now have freedom. Freedom. We have freedom to serve God without fear. 
We have freedom to serve God out of love for Him. Not trying to earn love from Him, but because He's already freely given it to us. He loved us first. He saved us by His grace. And now we love Him in return. And Jesus tells us how to love Him. He says, if you love me, obey my commandments. So we take Him on His terms. We love Him, so now we freely obey Him. We were once slaves to sin, now we're slaves to righteousness because of the radical love that we have for God, because of the radical grace of God given to us. So the question we always ask at the end of every sermon, where is Christ? Well, I I hope that you've been able to see Him all over this text, right? Because I've been doing my best to weave Him through this entire story because Christ's grace to us is everywhere in this text. But one verse came to mind out of the New Testament um, in a place that I didn't expect to find it. It came to mind as as I contemplated the question, where is Christ in this text? This is beautiful. Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. And He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Without payment. Christ says, come to me. Drink freely. It costs you nothing. So come to Christ, you who are thirsty for the grace of God, and He will satisfy your need without price because Jesus has paid it all. He has bought your peace with God by His own blood. All is of grace. Come to Him by faith and receive it. That's why we sing a hymn that says, Come and drink without price. It says Christ will satisfy the thirsty without price. All glory be to Christ our King. So as we leave here, my prayer is that we would do so with a deeper appreciation for the grace of God given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would look to Naaman and see ourselves as sinful lepers in need of God's healing grace then we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have received peace with God by grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Know that. Bury yourself in that. Your peace with God is in Christ and what He has done. And it's all of grace. And then after becoming convinced of that, my prayer is that we would go seeking to imitate the slave girl that we would become like her, that we would point unclean people toward the gracious God who has cleansed us by the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Father, your grace is astounding. Thank you that your favor comes at no cost to us. But God, we know it came at a great cost for you that you gave your son in order to save us that you gave your son to satisfy your wrath for our uncleanliness that you gave your son to completely perfectly obey the law for our righteousness God soften our hearts break our hearts with the gospel let us bask in the peace that your grace gives us 
God, and let us not cheapen that grace by living however we please. Give us hearts like Naaman that we say, I want to give back to God, though I cannot pay him back. I will give him everything that I am, though I am worthless. I will give him everything because of what he has given for me. Give us hearts that just beat with the rhythm of grace. We thank you for Christ crucified. We praise your name. Amen.